Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page, where you do get early access and exclusive content. Link will be down in the show notes. So today I'm talking to Nick Sarwak, and most of you know him as the chairman of the LP, but that's not all that he is. That's not the sum total of his parts. Um... He is actually a criminal defense lawyer, and when he was in Colorado, he did work in the public defender's office, and so I wanted to sit down and have a chat with Nick because I find this to be incredibly interesting, and especially talking to someone who is a libertarian and who did toil in these minds. So, Nick, go ahead, introduce yourself, say hello. Hello, and thank you for having me on. Uh, This is one of my favorite topics to discuss. And I think, you know, criminal justice issues, especially around the war on drugs, uh, underlies so much of what makes me tick as a libertarian and what the government uses to take away rights from a lot of people who may not be directly uh, impacted or may not be charged with a crime. But you lose a lot of your civil liberties based on scare tactics about criminals and crime and, you know, we have to pass these laws or reduce these freedoms in order to keep you safe. Exactly. And I want to start with talking about your time back in Colorado when you were working in the public defender's office. And for those of you who don't kind of know Nick's backstory, um, he's basically the closest thing you can get to like a lifelong, like second gen libertarian that you can kind of get. So how was it like being somebody who it wasn't like the job radicalized you or turned you into a libertarian? You were already there. And so as a libertarian, as having your beliefs, having to work within the system like that, I imagine like I'm I'm always fascinated by people who can do a job that I know I can't do. <laughs> And I I know that if I were ever a lawyer, I'd probably be disbarred in the first six months for popping off on a judge. So I'm always interested in people that can do something that I can't do. And so I wanted to kind of see, like, what what was it like kind of working in the system as a public defender, especially being a libertarian and kind of having to confront on a day-to-day basis a lot of the injustices that are present in our criminal justice system. Yeah. um, Well, it's funny because being a libertarian is part of the reason I went to law school. I was uh, inspired actually by our current president. I read a story about him uh, trying to steal a little old lady's house in Atlantic city and the Institute for justice fought back against him and protected Vera Koking from having her house stolen for limo parking uh, for the president's now failed casino. And I read about that in reason magazine and thought, man, you know, if I go to law school, I can fight for people and fight for their rights against, you know, people who would use the government to take their rights away. And coming out of law school in 2008, uh, I interviewed with the Colorado public defender's office and they made me an offer. I did not go in thinking of being a public defender or even thinking of going into criminal law. I thought that I would be some sort of constitutional civil rights attorney like at IJ. Um, 
turns out there aren't a lot of those jobs in the world. And so you take what you can get a little bit. But uh, the opportunity to be a public defender and get that experience defending people, it may be the most libertarian job that a lawyer can get. Because while we are all out here in the broader liberty movement and within the Libertarian Party working for freedom, working for liberty, only as a public defender do you actually get to release people from cages. You literally set people free when things go the way they should go. And that is an incredible feeling. You know, one of the things that uh, I did get a little radicalized by being a deputy public defender uh, because I went into, I'd been a libertarian for 10 years uh, as an adult when I started that job. And I would have considered myself to be, you know, kind of a small government libertarian, right? You know, maybe cops and fire and there's a few things that the government should do, but not as much as it's doing now. And working for a government agency and seeing the machinery of the state, especially as a raid against um people without means to defend themselves pushed me a lot closer to wanting there to be no government because even the best, even when the system's working as best it can, it's still not that good. Um, but it was a great time. I spent five years doing that job. I think I had a total of 36 trials to a jury, including a couple of first degree murder cases. And um, it gave me... You know, you, you talk about how it would be difficult to do it without popping off or getting held in contempt or being disbarred, but what was impressed on me from the very beginning was this idea of client-centered representation, that the old school way of practicing law where you tell the client this is the right thing to do and you should just do it and listen to me because I'm the lawyer. That's not really the model that most public defender's offices have nowadays. The idea is that you sit down with your client and figure out what their goals are. You know, some clients come into a case really afraid of consequences, and they want you to help them minimize consequences. Other clients come into the case and say, you know, I don't care about consequences. I care about justice or vindication or I you know, just want my trial rights because... They're guaranteed to me. And the nice thing about being a public defender, because you have a, a constitutional job, is you don't have to talk about how much does this cost. There's no, you know, we used to refer to it as the best defense that money can't buy. Because I'm on salary as a public defender. So it's all the same to me whether or not we plead uh, to a lesser offense for a lighter sentence or if we do a two-week trial with a bunch of motions hearings and have a jury come in and you get the full panoply of rights. I go home to my family either way every night. And that was a very, um, it's more liberating than you would think it would be. That's interesting. And a point that you just brought up, and it's something that I kind of struggle with too and I try to be better with, is this idea of kind of stepping outside of yourself for a second and looking at the person in front of you and being like, okay, what does this person want? And obviously that's a very valuable skill as a public defender, but I think that's also a really valuable skill as anybody who is trying to pitch any kind of idea to another person. And this is something I think a lot about because I think a lot about how best to kind of 
sell, for lack of a better term, libertarianism to people who aren't already here. And so meeting people where they're at is a very valuable skill. And that's that that just the the idea of kind of being able to like step outside of yourself, I think, is really interesting and something that I should probably work on too, and maybe all of us should work on. Yeah, I mean, there are some things in life that are about you, but most things in life are not about you, and it's one of the challenges of criminal justice reform. Pretty much every baby public defender or you know law student who wants to be a public defender reads the statistics and you can read them too. something like 95% of criminal prosecutions do not end up with a jury trial might be 97%. They all end with um, some kind of negotiated plea agreement. And oftentimes that's because prosecutors have mandatory sentencing. They have overly draconian or carceral um, guidelines set forth in the criminal law that they can threaten a defendant with really serious charges of many, many years in prison, uh, potentially even life in prison in the case of certain sex offenses or homicides. And then they can offer, on the other hand, you know, you could take this lesser offense, cop to a felony and get out within a year or maybe no prison at all, as long as you can comply with probation. And really idealistic attorneys look at that and say, well, we can fix this system because there's no way, there's not enough time or money or courtrooms for them to try all these cases. We could gum up the works and slam on the brakes just by complying. And every time someone thinks of trying that, they usually get reminded often by a senior public defender that this is not a game, that the pawns in this game are human beings who are facing criminal charges who have to do that prison time. So if a judge or a prosecutor gets mad that you've taken too many cases to trial to try and gum up the works, they can't really take it out on you. You're an attorney. So as long as you don't do anything contemptuous or unethical, you get to keep doing your thing. They take it out on your client. You know, and your client who had a one-year plea offer gets it withdrawn and then takes, you know, 36 years in prison. And that ru- that system, that set of incentives, you know, it's, it's very important to not just look at these things theoretically or from a policy perspective or a libertarian philosophical perspective. You have to look at the reality of the world and how these policies affect real human beings and that they matter. And it's, you know, there's two, two libertarian issues that can amp me up pretty fast. One is criminal justice reform. And the other one is, you know, opposition to school choice or forcing children into um, public schools to try and make the system be better because children should not be used as the currency to somehow improve a system. Like you force people to send their kids to a terrible public school and get a terrible education because maybe that's going to make the system better if you force the affluent parents or the parents who are more engaged to give their child this lesser education. You know, you can't use them as grist for the mill. 
Yeah, and I actually had a long discussion last year with Matt Welch on this topic because of what's going on up in his school in district. Brooklyn. Up in yeah, up in this, he's in District 15, so they've got that weird. We're gonna shuffle all the kids around to make some kind of racial egalitarianism thingamajig. I don't even really know what they're trying to accomplish there because it really doesn't make much sense to me. But they want an integrated school, but you know, yeah, doing that—they're not pieces on a board. These are children. These are children with friends. They're children with parents. They're children who may have you know relationships with teachers. They may have a school that's closer to them. They may, you know, just get along better in certain schools with certain programs. And that whole way of looking at the world that that undergirds our entire educational system, it is based on a Prussian model, which is about churning out people that can then go be civil servants or soldiers. You know, you want them to be cogs in the machine. And it's just... It's anti-human. It is. And I think a a similarity between both of those systems is people seem to forget, especially when you're talking about the justice system and you're talking about the people in it, be it judges, be it attorneys, be it plaintiffs, defendants, whatever. These are people. And sometimes, especially to the point you were making about judges, sometimes you're not dealing with the nicest of people, shall we say? And you mm. still have to deal with sometimes people wanting to do very petty and dickish sort of things to get back at you, but then it affects the, your client. And it's like, there, there's a lot in the criminal justice system that I don't think people really sit down and think about too much because, I mean, unless you're in it, it doesn't really affect you. Like, unless you're you're being brought up on charges or something, or you're an attorney, or you're a judge, or you're somehow affiliated with the criminal justice system, it's not something that you really spend a lot of time sitting down and, like, kind of thinking through and going down the rabbit hole and trying to be like, okay, does this system really even make sense on a certain level because on on a lot of levels it really doesn't once you start thinking about it it's like why do we do the things the way we do the things and sometimes it's like it's one of those i'm i'm really kind of hoping that criminal justice reform like 2019 wasn't a bad year for criminal justice reform we did have some bright spots and i hope that keeps going forward into 2020 but i i do just want at least for people to start thinking about it in a little bit more of a constructive way. Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing, and this this is an overarching thing that I've been trying to do in my term as chairman of the Libertarian Party, and when I talk to libertarians and go around and speak, is there is a, a tendency to dismiss people who are not in the right group or don't have the right beliefs as not really people, right? You don't think of them as people. You think of them as an an other, right? So sometimes libertarians have a a bad tendency to assume that because somebody doesn't agree with them about our principles or about a policy position, that that person is an irredeemable leftist or statist or, you know, an idiot or a fool or, you know, 
a lot of worse names that I'd rather not use. And that lack of empathy is detrimental not only to our cause, I think it's detrimental to our development as humans. Empathy is the key to all of this. And, and to give you, you know, sort of a free lesson in how to win a, a jur criminal jury trial, there's one key at the very beginning of a trial. At the beginning of a trial, they have what's called voir dire, um, or jury selection, if you don't like French. And you ask jurors what their feelings are about the case, um, about the issues in the case, about you know, your people who are of color, if your clients of color, people who are gay, if your clients gay, you know, you, you ask them whether or not they have biases. And what you're really trying to get to is in order for a person to be acquitted of a crime, the people on the jury have to, at some level, be able to think there, but for the grace of God, go I. They have to, at some level, empathize with the person who's sitting at defense table and think that if things had gone worse in their life or they had had a bad moment or bad judgment or been in the wrong situation or, you know, really needed the money or whatever it is, they could have been in that seat. And that empathy is what allows them to really apply the idea of requiring proof beyond a reasonable doubt to really require the state to meet its burden of proving things beyond a reasonable doubt and create the potential for there to be an acquittal. Now, that's the starting point. You know, you, you still have to have a better case than the prosecution and show that there's doubt. But if you don't have a jury that can empathize with your client, there's no chance of an acquittal. Because if they don't think of that person as a person with the same value or a similar value to themselves, they won't consider the case with the correct amount of importance. They won't think about it enough. And that empathy is key to doing good criminal justice reform. It's to get people to stop talking about someone that they see who got, say, let out on bail after bail reform without having to post money and think about that person as already a criminal. You know, deny them the presumption of innocence, deny them personhood, and just think of them as a rapist or a murderer. Once they put them in that box, they're not thinking straight anymore. You know, you shouldn't do anything to someone else that you wouldn't want done to you if you were similarly situated. And I think a lot of people don't realize how quickly that can be you. Especially on 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 the very quickly. Yes, when, once you start understanding how many things are illegal in this country, be it on a federal level, a state level, a local level, it it could very easily be any of us in that seat on any given day, given a series of events where you are caught doing something, and even it might not even be something that you know is illegal. It may not even be something that's like you know you're breaking the law. But you're breaking the law, and now you're in that chair. And so, yeah, it there but for the grace of God, go you. Like, it could be you any day. Right. And that, that piece of the puzzle is just something that, you know, it, it's hard because 
people have emotions about these things, right? People see somebody who's accused of doing something terrible and they have a visceral response and they, they immediately go to hate. And, you know, it, it's our shared humanity that keeps us from turning into monsters. I mean, not to, to overstate the case, but, you know, if you go back and read history, uh, especially around the, the German situation uh, in World War II and the Third Reich, the people who allowed a lot of these atrocities to happen were not bad people. They were good people who had families and jobs and, you know, were nice to their dogs. What had happened was they allowed their government through the use of, you know, skillful propaganda and the need to have some reason for why things were bad to get them to a point where they would consider a group of people to not be people. Once you consider people to not be people, any kind of bad thing can happen, right? I mean, most of us eat meat. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we consider animals to be something other than people because we wouldn't just go kill people and eat them. I'm not trying to make like a big vegetarian argument. I'm just showing <laughs> that once you are able to take a group of people in your society and put them in the animal category, you know, and it, it happens in very subtle ways. Um, one of the, the things that really gets me when we talk about things like immigration is uh, opponents of open immigration will often talk about, well, we can't be importing, you know, all of these low-skilled people who are going to vote for Democrats, right? The use of the word importing, as opposed to they cannot be allowed to migrate or come into the country, it denies the agency of the immigrant. Importing is what you do for livestock. Importing is what you do for commodities. And it's that little piece of dehumanization that's slipped in there you know, or referring to people as illegals, right? Illegals does not sound like a way you describe a person. It's a way you describe a thing. And once you make people into things, then it's easy to talk about, you know, you know, looping it back around to criminal justice. When you just consider people to be perpetrators or, you know, defendants, it's easy to say, well, sure, yeah, you know, I sentence you to 36 years in the Department of Correction. That's 36 years of somebody's life, right? Like that's somebody who's going to come out an old man if they come out at all. That should have more weight than it does. And, you know, part of it's a defense mechanism because if you consider people people, you wouldn't make some of the arguments you make and you wouldn't hand down some of the sentences you hand down or you would get so depressed about your job that you might quit. And so it's always important to um, help people see the reality of what they're doing. Uh, you know, they may not end up agreeing with you completely, but if you can get them to change the way they think about things, maybe they'll look at it in a different way. Yeah, and the on, on the topic of othering, I mean, immigration is kind of my thing. And okay. Some, some Are you day- an immigrant? No. <laughs> I'm born and raised in South Florida. I was born in March of 81. Okay. So I pretty much spent my whole childhood watching Cuban refugees come ashore. Uh-huh. 
And so obviously this informs my views of immigration and of communism. But it's it's one of those where, I mean, I'm pretty outspoken about it. But there are certain times, especially on certain platforms, that I do pull my punches just because the responses kind of... I have a thick skin, but sometimes certain things just get to me. <laughs> and the the way that people can other other groups of people, I just, I, I find that kind of repugnant, honestly, because mm-hmm. I'm mean, like, these, these are people too. Like these are people trying to get away from horrible situations that none of us can imagine. And also when to tie it back to criminal justice reform, when you're sending somebody to jail or prison for however long you're doing it, you're depriving somebody of their liberty. Whether you're doing it for a day, a week, a month, a decade, however long it is, you're depriving somebody of one of their basic human rights. And that, I don't think, is given the gravity that it really deserves when when people are just very flippant about things like mandatory minimums or sending people into into prisons or jails on reasons of not being able to pay bail or pretrial detention or just for whatever reason, you're depriving somebody of their liberty. You're telling somebody that they can't do a thing. And so I think that if you're going to tell somebody that they can't do a thing, you have to have a very good reason for making that argument. I absolutely agree. I think um, it's remembering that that I think is the the key to tempering some of these bad instincts that our policymakers have. You know, one of the the arguments within libertarian spaces, especially within the party, since we try and convince non-libertarians, is what's the value of the slogan taxation is theft? Like, is that a good slogan? Is it a bad slogan? Is it a good bumper sticker or a bad bumper sticker? And I think the right way to look at it is it's definitely not an argument. It's just a statement. But what that statement can do, it can start a conversation where you realize that every dollar that the government uses to do something, and maybe some of the things are good things that ought to be done, was taken. And to just be careful about that, right? To be thoughtful and judicious about it, to to recognize what you're doing and not do it wastefully or wantonly. And, and that's a lot of, you know, criminal justice. There are probably people who have done very bad things who deserve long sentences in prison. But when you get mandatory minimums, you get judges with their discretion taken away, you get prosecutors, you know, trying to make political name for themselves, you separate that idea that you really are taking away years of someone's life, that you're taking a father away from his children you're taking a member of their community away from being able to have a good job and build something. Um, and you're doing it at great cost to the taxpayer. You know, we had an experience um, at the car dealership in Phoenix where a woman came and she, she came in after hours, broke into the window, stole the keys to a van, drove it through the fence and ended up apprehended like three blocks away, you know, crashed into something, a little bit of body damage, cut herself on the window, 
um, very mentally ill, uh, very under the influence of some sort of substance, very scared. Uh, and they brought her in. And the prosecutor, you know, I was representing the victim, which was weird for me because that's not normally <laughs> my side of the thing, um, said, you know, we've, we've offered her a deal for, I want to say it was six years or eight years in prison. And I went to court and I told the judge, I said, you know, I just want to say, I don't, I don't want her sent to prison. I want, you know, the money back for what was damaged and I want her to go get some help so that she stops doing this sort of thing. You know, and we deal with the underlying cause. I don't want her to go to prison. And the judge, uh, probably not knowing I was a lawyer because I was in my, you know, car dealer outfit, uh, said, well, you know, I, this is a, a stipulated agreement between the prosecutor and the public defender. And so I have to take it. And if I don't take it, you know, she would have to go to trial and she could face a lot more years. And I said, you know, I understand that, but I want you to know that as the business owner who was hurt and a taxpayer in Maricopa County, I don't want this. The prosecutor does, and that's the agreement, but that's not what I want. I don't want to spend money to incarcerate somebody to no end. You know, it doesn't make us whole. It actually punishes us for this need of prosecutors to show that they're tough on crime. And I think that that may be a key to this lock, you know, to solve some of the criminal justice reform problem is to really tie it back to the fact that we pay for all of this, that this wanton cruelty in our criminal justice system is not free and it's our money as taxpayers that go into it. You know, when, when Sheriff Joe Arpaio was doing his racist bigoted thing before he got convicted of contempt and then pardoned by our delightful president, you know, I was always amazed that the citizens of Maricopa County, who are very conservative, didn't rise up and kick him out of office because he cost them millions and millions and millions of dollars in civil rights settlements. You know, like, go be a racist bigot on your own time and on your own time. Don't make me pay for it. And I think that's a part that people don't really think about is that when you have these sorts of systems in place where you do have mandatory minimums and you do have these harsh sentencings is that you have to pay for it. Like you're paying to house these people, to feed them, to clothe them, to keep them in these cages. And it's not cheap. It's not cheap at all. It costs a lot of money to do this. And so there's an argument there to be made that, yes, there there is an economic argument that like, okay, we need to stop and think about like, okay, if you're looking at your state, your county, your federal government spending X amount of dollars on incarceration, it's like, okay, well, what, what, what are we really spending our money on here? Who is in these prisons? What did they do? Is this really worth it from an economic perspective? And I wanted to kind of touch back on the story that you just told, because a part of the criminal justice system that I don't think a lot of people think about either is that it doesn't really take the plaintiff into consideration as to what exactly it is they would want in recompense for whatever harm was done to them. 
Like, you did not want this woman to go to jail. You did not want her to have to suffer anything like that. You just wanted to be made whole monetarily, which that's in, in, a, in a libertarian slash anarchist society. That is how things would work, but that's not how things work here. And there's no freedom for it to work that way here. It's not like you can say, well, yes, this person stole my property. She wrecked it. I, I don't want her to go to jail. I just want my money back. But there's no room for that. Well, there's there's two things. It's it's a it's kind of a deep conversation. So one of the shifts that was made between British common law and American common law is under the British system, you can you can retain a prosecutor. So you can you can retain a barrister to represent you in court against someone who's committed a criminal offense. They have, they have the concept of private prosecution. The American system does not have that. The American system has the intermediary of the state. And the reason for it, actually, it comes down to a good reason. You know, if, if you were the one who is aggrieved, you're, you're the one whose child got murdered, or you're the one who, you know, home got burglarized, there was a concern that you would want too much revenge, right? That you wouldn't have a natural human instinct to want to kill that person or to, to want to exact more th than is appropriate as a pound of flesh. And that having the state sort of disintermediate it was supposed to um, be more judicious, right? They were supposed to have kind of an objective look at it and and look at the broader justice for the community. So that is a noble goal. The issue that has happened in the United States, however, is that while there are a lot of states that have passed things called Victims' Bill of Rights, where a victim has a right to be heard at all meaningful proceedings and can tell the court and the prosecutor what they want for sentencing, in practice, most prosecutors' offices only trot out victims when the victims say what the prosecutor wants. And we saw this, um, my regional trial office was the one that handled the James Holmes case in Colorado, uh, which you may remember, uh, there was a theater shooting at the opening of one of the Batman movies. Mm -hmm. And there was a victim's bill of rights, and many of the victims and the victims fam or not victims, victims families came forward and said, we don't want this man killed because killing this man won't bring back any of our family members. We don't want to go through a trial. We don't want to relive all the events. We, we want this to be over. We want him to get life without parole. And the defense team, um, which I was not on, but you know, I, I paid attention to the news because it was coming out of my office, um, offered at the very outset of the case to plead to first-degree murder and accept a sentence of life without parole. And the prosecutor wouldn't do it. The prosecutor was determined to seek a death sentence, even though many of the victims didn't want it, even though the defendant was willing to spare the state the cost of the trial and give up any possibility of ever being a free man ever again. And so the prosecutor who wanted to make a political name for himself and has later gone on to run for various public offices pushed forward with the trial. And at the end of the day, the 
defense team won life without parole. But after great, great cost and expense and emotional damage to the families, and that is fairly common that prosecutors want to hear from victims when victims are going to feed the bloodlust, but prosecutors do not want to hear from victims when victims want mercy. Yeah, and I, I think that's really sad because especially knowing that that is how it ended with life without parole, like you could have just done that from the beginning if you would have just respected the victim's wishes and listened, but apparently, and this is also going back to the fact that in the criminal justice system, it is populated by people who may have different motivations than you. Justice. Yeah. <laughs> or or you or the plaintiff, defendant, judges, like people have different motivations and all of that ties into how people get treated. And like you said, this isn't a game. Like this is actually people's lives on the line here, but it's not always necessarily treated as such. And I mean, I don't know how you eliminate the human component of that. And I don't know exactly if you would ever want to, because I don't think the alternative would be much better, but it's just, it's, it, there's, it, it, there's just a lot there to unpack. And it's just, there's a lot of layers that happen in the system that it's, it's never just this black and white thing. And it inevitably ends up with somebody getting screwed over and somebody not getting listened to and somebody trying to make their point over somebody else's point. And it's just, yeah, I mean, there's humanity sometimes sucks, but like I said, yeah, I don't think I would trust the alternative, simple. but it's, it's not simple. These things are not simple. And if you get somebody who's telling you they're simple, they're probably lying. You know, it's one of the places where, we all have our not libertarian positions or positions that, you know, other libertarians disagree with. And as much as I, I like a free market and I would prefer to have private actors with economic incentives do things rather than the state, I do not support the idea of private prisons. And it's not because I don't think that a private company could not be more efficient in the running of a prison. It's because there should never be a profit incentive on human suffering or human captivity. Like it's just, it's a fundamental wrong in the same way that chattel slavery was. There is, there is no need to make it more efficient or more humane. You just need to stop. It's not good, you know, and we need to, you know, my take on criminal justice reform my my end goal, my North Star is we really need to just stop locking people up as much as we do. There's really good research um, in uh, the new Jim Crow and some of the other academic research on recidivism. Basically, once you have somebody in prison for a year or two, that's all the deterrence that you can get. So given somebody a five-year sentence or a 10-year sentence or a 15-year sentence or a 20-year sentence has no effect on recidivism other than the standard drop in recidivism that comes from people aging out of crime. You know, people who, men, it's usually men, mostly men who commit crimes, once they get over the age of 35, they don't commit crimes anymore for the most part. 
because they have different impulse control, they have different ties, they just age out of it. And so you don't need to lock somebody up for the rest of their life. You know, at, at worst, you need to lock them up for some period of time for there to be a consequence. But these long sentences have no real effect and they come at great cost, both to the defendant who loses their life, I mean, a large chunk of it, as well as to the taxpayer and the system that has to spend a bunch of money and build this infrastructure in order to house that person. You know, and then you can't even keep them safe. They, they're subject to sexual assault in prison. You have drugs, you have violence, you have gangs. They often come out worse than when they came in. You know, it's just like the racist war on drugs, the nature of our criminal justice system is just that it's fundamentally broken in really serious ways. And most of it just has to be dismantled. There may be some kernel in there somewhere, you know, kind of like the old story about the large pile of manure and, you know, just dig through it. There's got to be a pony in there. There might be a pony in there somewhere. I just haven't found it yet. It's, it's got to be buried pretty deep because, um, yeah, we haven't found it yet. But I think that's a good point to kind of pivot to something else I want to talk to you about. And that is there are two kind of rays of good news on the criminal justice front, one of which is definitely a little more on shaky ground than other ones. But I want to go ahead and talk to you about what is going on in New York. And for those of you who don't know, um, as of January 1st in New York, they have eliminated cash bail and pretrial detention for misdemeanors and certain nonviolent felony offenses. So that's obviously a huge, huge deal. Cash bail is an incredibly controversial topic because it is a way of criminalizing poverty. I mean, obviously, if you can't pay to get out of jail, then you're stuck in jail. And then there's also the topic of pretrial detention in and of itself. Like, why why are we doing this again exactly? Like, why are we jailing people who have not actually been convicted of any crimes and are technically supposed to be considered considered innocent until proven guilty, but you're still sitting in the cage. And unless you can pay to get out of the cage, you're in the cage. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that New York is doing some bail reform. I know New Hampshire did some bail reform last year. Um, you know, a lot of these issues, you just look at who's on each side of it and you can figure out pretty quickly what the point was. So the concept of bail is bail is there to ensure that a person accused of a crime shows up at all court appearances up to the point of trial and the determination of whether or not they're guilty of that crime beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what bail's for. Bail is not for punishing bad people. Bail is not for keeping dangerous people off the streets. Bail is not for us exercising our rage at somebody who's accused of doing something terrible that we really, really don't like and a way of sending a signal about how much we don't like that kind of behavior. Um, there's a lot of performative stuff in these editorials you read opposing bail reform about, you know, this person might just commit another crime or this person is a drug addict or this person's a, a terrible rapist or assaulter or murderer or whatever, you know, 
it's not about that. It's about making sure they come to court. And what, you know, a lot of people try and hide in this argument about bail reform is that before bail reform, if somebody had money with the same facts, the same terrible thing they are accused of doing, they would get to walk free and somebody without money would not. And so it, it's legitimately just income for the bail bond industry. You know, a bail bondsman as a standard, um, it goes up or down, but you know, if you're set $50,000 bail, a bail bondsman would take $5,000, post a $50,000 bond, and as long as you showed up at court, you know, you would get to be out before your, your trial, but that $5,000 is not refundable. You lose that $5,000. You pay it in order to be able to defend your case from being out of custody. And the statistics are pretty clear. You have roughly, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's twice as likely, maybe more so, to win a dismissal or a significantly lower sentence if you're able to defend yourself out of custody than if you are in custody. Because having you locked in a cage gives leverage to a prosecutor to force you to take a deal just to get out of the cage. And I've had my clients tell me, I didn't do it, or I didn't do what they said I did. And I've looked at the evidence and said, you're absolutely right, you didn't. And this charge is not going to stick. And if we go to trial, I'm you know, very confident we have a great chance of winning it. And they'll still cop to it because the prosecutor gives them an offer that says we'll let you out and put you on probation. Like that's that's fundamentally not just. And those people that are trying to push to keep us on a cash bail system or fight back against bail reform, really what they are mad about is that these defendants now have the opportunity to actually defend themselves without destroying their lives. That the prosecutors have to make a case. They have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. They can't just extort the guilty plea out of somebody. And, you know, one of the nice things about bail reform is all the, all the right people are angry. And so uh, I think it's a pretty good thing from a libertarian perspective. But we have to defend it. And the way to defend it is you have to help people understand what bail's about and why we have bail. And you have to help them get back to that idea of empathy. You know, if you were charged with this crime, would you want to be able to defend yourself out of custody or in custody? And I think an argument that a lot of the pro-cash bail people make is kind of appealing to what I think are like the 5% of cases, like the your, your rapists, your murderers, your, your hardcore people. 95% of what you're dealing with in the criminal justice system is not those people. What you're dealing with are low-level offenses, stuff that, depending on your particular ideology, should or should not be legal. And and I, I'm probably going to go ahead and butcher his name, but Scott Hershinger, he's actually a PD up in Brooklyn. Mm. He He's on Twitter, and sometimes he does night court. And sometimes he'll do Twitter threads on his particular cases in night court. And sometimes, I'll be honest, they're hard to read. 
because mm-hmm. it's like some of this stuff is like these people are being given bail that the judge knows they cannot afford. Like it's they it's, they can't afford it, but it's still being given to them, and they're th- being thrown in jail for these kind of stupid, petty things that. Honestly, you know, like this is just ridiculous, but it's just it it's so it's heartbreaking to when you when you think about it in that way because like I said, it's uh, everybody points to like the 5% of the cases, but you don't look at the other 95%. And kind of the same way with pretrial detention, which obviously ties into cash bail too, but you look at it as like, oh, well these people need to be kept in jail so that they'll show up to their court. I'm like do you understand what it is to be in jail if you are not of the means to, say, lose a paycheck for a week or two weeks or three weeks or till whenever you can make bail, if you can ever make bail? Like, it's it's a situation that spirals. Yeah, it's, our, our yeah. criminal justice system is fundamentally coercive. You know, the prosecutors have leverage and they use the leverage. And that leverage can be taking you away from your job. Um, in federal cases, it's very common. If you're charged with a federal offense, even if you're out of custody, the federal conspiracy statute is so broad that they basically say, hey, Jen, uh, you know, I know that uh, you may think you've got a defense to this, but you probably talked to your husband about it. How would you like to see us go after him for conspiracy charges? You know, they carry the same, you know, multi-decade federal prison sentence as yours. So did you want to cop to something yourself or did you want to drag your husband into it? What about your kids? You ever talk to your kids about it? Like they'll literally threaten your family. Um, And it's totally legal. And that system, I mean, the other thing is, accusations are free in the criminal justice system. That's what the presumption of innocence really means. It means that any DA can file an information accusing you of whatever terrible crime that they say that you did. And they often do, you know, it, the big thing lately, um, and this is something, you know, that sex workers are very upset about is, the courts will, or, or the criminal statutes or the prosecutors will call everything sex trafficking or pimping, right? If you rent an apartment to somebody who engages in sex work, you are now running a house of prostitution and you can be charged with that. You are now a sex trafficker. And if somebody reads a news report about that, they look at the, the headline and they go, well, sex traffickers shouldn't be on the street. Of course, keep them without bail. They should be locked up forever. I mean, why even bother with a trial? They're terrible people. And you know that that charge is BS, but you don't get a chance to prove it until it's tested in court. And if you're locked up pre-trial, you may never get a chance to prove it because they may say, well, we'll let you plead to a charge that may have been the charge they should have filed in the first place. You know, if they weren't trying to overcharge and sensationalize. And you'll do it because you got to get out and you got to feed your kids and you got to, you know, get a job. And that kind of just cruelty and inhumanity is endemic to the system. But, you know, one of the things that's important, and, and I, I do it because I used to do defense work all the time, is I'm always skeptical when I see a headline 
and it says, you know, somebody's been charged with some terrible, terrible thing. You know, we had a case in Phoenix, and I wasn't practicing as much criminal law in Phoenix, but there was this um, freeway shooter, and they brought this guy in and said, well, we've got ballistics that link him to these shootings, and everyone's on TV talking about how he, you know, they want to hold him without bail and blah, blah, blah. And I looked to my wife while we're watching the news, and I'm like, I would take that guy's case in an instant. I'll bet you $100 that it doesn't go anywhere. And lo and behold, as soon as it got through the process, although this guy was held in custody for you know probably nine months getting there, they dropped it all against him. They had to give him his gun back because they just rolled up on a guy and charged him because they had some goofy ballistics that you know weren't really reliable but they needed to close the case, right? They needed to arrest a suspect. And so they did. Like, that happens all the time. And we should be, especially libertarians, if you're skeptical of state power, if you're skeptical of the president, you know, talking about going to war, you should have that same amount of skepticism for your neighborhood police chief or your neighborhood DA saying that, you know, some defendant is a terrible person. Yeah, and I think that two two kind of things I want to touch on there. Um, people, I don't think, understand from a legal perspective what certain charges could possibly mean, especially when you're talking about sex trafficking. Like you, you throw that out there, and people like it think automatically like some kind of they international think in like cages or yeah containers or like some kind of international ring where you're bringing women from china and bringing them here and forcing them into sex work and like no it could really be as simple as two sex workers working together in the buddy system and then one of them gets charged with sex trafficking because you're working with a sex worker right or taking pictures for somebody and posting them on Backpage. yeah the person who takes the pictures is a sex trafficker under at least the federal statute if not certain state statutes which is just absolutely ridiculous and i i I think they do it on purpose and they weaponize certain concepts so that people don't really think about what you could be charged with i mean using assault assault can be anything from i beat you within an inch of your life to i slapped a phone out of your hand like, yep. obviously, one of those things, I deserve to be in jail. The other one, I really don't. Yeah, and there's a, there's a little secret trick. Um, you know, the whole uh, animal farm, all animals are equal, but some animals are e- more equal than others. So, uh, at least in Colorado, a second-degree assault is uh, an assault with a serious, like a deadly weapon that causes serious bodily injury. Except... If you slap a phone out of the hand of a cop, it's also a second-degree assault. Now, if you slap a phone out of the hand of a person who's not a police officer, it's like a misdemeanor. But you do it out of the hand of a cop, it's the same as if you stabbed him. Yeah. Uh, an, another person who is not a police officer. And it lets them, you know, certain accusations are themselves... Uh, they turn off the thinking circuits and they are so toxic that it makes it very difficult to get any kind of a defense. And the biggest one, I mean, is any kind of sexual case, especially one that involves anyone who's underage. You know, I've had 
whole halves of jury panels, like literally half the people in the box say that they think that the person who's accused of this crime is automatically guilty because they're accused. That, that because the accusation is so bad, they basically shouldn't even get a trial. They should just be buried under the prison without any of this, you know, justice stuff. And you see it in a lot of our discourse in public and especially online. It's very easy to label somebody and use really um, inflammatory language. And it comes back to that othering, right? Like once you've accused somebody of doing something so terrible, you can convince people to stop thinking of that person as a person and stop thinking about whether or not that has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, and I think that that also speaks to the second point I wanted to make, which is the the level of skepticism that you should be applying to anything that anybody in law enforcement or the criminal justice system has to say about a particular topic needs to be ratcheted up way higher than it is, especially if you're a libertarian. Because, of course, these people, I mean, there's there's incentives. Let's keep it real. I mean, law enforcement has certain incentives. They have certain quotas they have to meet. I mean, prosecutors have their quotas that they have to meet. It's just there's there's a lot of different reasons why things happen the way they do. And just to take them on face value and to just assume that law enforcement is telling the truth and that prosecutors are telling the truth and that it's not being some kind of bizarre overblown thing and that really what it is down at its kernel is like nothing honestly i i there there needs to be a hell of a lot more skepticism applied to this whole system in general yeah i i think i think that's definitely key and i think one of the things that's helped is the ubiquity of cell phones and cameras you know because now you're finding these cases where the police officers reports all say that you know the person had a gun or the person came at me or whatever and then you see the video you know one of the stories i like to talk about to illustrate this criminal justice stuff is i don't know if you remember walter scott in south carolina getting shot in the back Mm -hmm. by the police officer Mm -hmm. and it was only because a bystander videotaped it that you saw that he was running away and unarmed and you know, we know that there are bad cops, right? We know that there are terrible people who are willing to lie to protect themselves. I'm not even mad so much about the existence of the police officer who murdered Walter Scott in cold blood. I mean, he obviously should be punished for it. But the piece that's so frightening is there were, I think, one or two other police officers on scene who watched that entire thing go down. And they also submitted reports that confirmed the lie that the killer put in his report. And that's the problem with our current, how policing is done in this country, is we say things like, well, you know, the bad cop is just the one bad apple. But somehow we've lost 
the end of that aphorism, which is that one bad apple will spoil the bunch. And when the other cops are willing to lie to support their fellow officer for some kind of greater good or loyalty, then I don't know. That, that sounds to me kind of like a gang uh, that, that is corrupt and needs fundamental, you know, top to bottom reform. I do not disagree with that. And to to the point where people try to make the, the kind of the thing like, okay, well, it's just some cops. I'm like, okay, well, if all of their friends on the force are willing to back them and their department are willing to back them, I, I'm, I'm, well, where does this end then exactly? Like how, if you're complicit in covering up someone else's crime, then criminally speaking, you're guilty too. So why does that not apply here? And how do you not kind of extrapolate that out further? And I'm not saying that libertarians don't. I mean, I there's plenty of us that do to kind of make the argument that this is systemic. Like this is a not just a couple of bad cops. It's like this is a whole system designed to protect those bad cops. Well, we get what we tolerate. I mean, I don't know if you know the old German joke, but what do you get if you get... Um, if you have one person around a table spouting a bunch of Nazi stuff and 10 other people at the table sitting there listening, how many Nazis are at the table? Well, that would be 10. Uh, yeah, they're, they're all there because while there's only the one who wants to say it, right, there's the one who's going to be out there saying it, there's this implicit approval in not speaking up and not saying, hey, that's not okay. You know, and there's a, you're probably of a, enough of a similar age. Do you, do you remember They Might Be Giants? Yeah. Do you remember the song, Your Racist Friend? Vaguely. Yeah, so was, uh, this is where the party ends. I can't stand here, sit, I can't sit here listening to you and your racist friend. And it's the idea that if you're going to tolerate this kind of corruption on the force. If you're going to let the one bad cop, you know, I'll tell you one more story um, because it's really frightening. Uh, I had a client who I met in jail and he had, he's a big dude, big arms, kind of jacked. And he had, you know, facial bruises, bunch of injuries. We sent an investigator to take pictures. And he was accused of a, assaulting a police officer who had just come to his house to, you know, do a welfare check or search warrant or something. And we go to preliminary hearing and, and the client told me, he said, I didn't, I didn't hit that cop. I didn't do anything. You know, I, they just came in and beat me up and, and made up all this stuff. I was like, okay, well we'll go to preliminary hearing. They have to show probable cause. And I called all the, the four cops that were there with the cop who had allegedly been, um, assaulted. And two of them on the stand said that, you know, because of the doorway or the hall, they just didn't see what happened. Like mm. they, they couldn't see it. They, they weren't in a good spot to see. So they're not, they're not sure. And another guy said, no, I definitely, you know, I didn't see any of that. And the judge, like, dismissed the charges at prelim. 
said, I frankly don't believe this officer's testimony is credible. You know, he's got all these other officers who were there. I don't think it happened. And the DA was livid. And they actually filed an appeal in order to get the charges reinstated against my client. And they eventually dismissed it. But even when I was getting the dismissal, which came like a month or so later, the client was in jail. Um, so they just got him out. The DA said, no, I still believe that cop was telling the truth. Like there's a, there's a, a, a need for a lot of people in law enforcement to stick so tightly together that they're willing to compromise who they are to do it. And that has to change, right? The, the reason that we've advanced as far as we have in this country on things like racism and you know mistreatment of women and misogyny and the Me Too stuff and bullying is that we now have a social lack of acceptance that if you say stuff like that more good people will stand up and say hey like that's not cool you can't do that that's not okay or if you do that I'm not gonna hang out with you anymore that needs that application of social pressure needs to be applied to the inside of some of these police forces that culture comes from the top you know and as much as we talk about the the dangers of the militarization of police like police officers should not be treating our streets as a war zone because the people in this country are not enemy combatants at least in the military there there's a culture of you know rules of engagement and and laws about not committing war crimes and that comes from the top you know the rules of engagement in Fallujah were actually more well established and more protective of individual rights than they are in many metropolitan cities you know you can't just shoot somebody down with with no penalty in the military but police officers can get away with it because of how the incentives are structured and how they cover for each other and that's one of the biggest concerns i have with you know the president's new penchant for uh, pardoning war criminals is that sends a message that that culture needs to be changed and not for the better and i think especially when you compare it to the military I think there's also a component there, especially when you're talking about rules of engagement with the military, if somebody breaks the rules of engagement, there is more of PR, for lack of a better term, but understanding that when a soldier does something that is against the established rules, that reflects badly on everybody in the military. And it is detrimental to the mission. Yeah, they realize what the mission is. The mission is to win the hearts and minds, right? It's to it's to come to a successful outcome, and the police don't seem to, at least in some jurisdictions, they don't have that mission. They don't care whether or not people like them or respect them, and it's that's dangerous. Yeah, and I think it's also it's just it. God knows people have tried to bring as much pressure as possible from the outside in on how the police operate in this country. But you're right. It's going to have to come from the inside. And I don't know how anybody 
from the outside forces that in. Like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how to do that, but it does need to be done. And I hope somebody smarter than I can figure it out because I just, I, I don't know. It's so, it's, it's so insular and it's just, it's so, the incentive structure is just as such to either say nothing or to actively cover up for your fellow police officers. And it's just like, I don't, I, I don't know how you get around that. Yeah, it's, you know, some of our problems are structural and structural problems require structural solutions. And that's one of the things that, you know, I I want us to get better at, especially as libertarians, is getting to the root of the problems and not just, you know, touching the surface. You know, it's it's great that we've had criminal justice reform things like the first step act and and things that make stuff better you know any improvement is an improvement we should take but you really if you want to change a system you have to get down to the incentives you know the the biggest structural reform that would fix it tomorrow um which is why it probably resisted vehemently is just make the civil rights lawsuits get paid out of the pension fund yes Please. And all of a sudden, everybody self-polices, right? Because I'm not standing up for that guy next to me if he's taking away my retirement money by being a jackass. I just won't. You know, he's once it's that shared, you know, that that's the thing that they have in the military, right? Is it reflects badly on the whole unit. So the unit has sort of an internal discipline. If you have that same kind of incentive within law enforcement, then law enforcement can solve their own problems. But as long as those civil rights lawsuits are paid out of new taxpayer funds, it's like no harm, no foul, right? The other thing is you got to get rid of, uh, there's a concept in the law of qualified immunity, which is basically made up by judges. But it's the idea that if it is not clearly established that this particular kind of violation of civil rights is unconstitutional, then a police officer can't be held liable for it. And the things that have been found to not be clearly established as unconstitutional are things like shooting at a dog and having the bullet ricochet and hit a three-year-old in the knee. You know, not so great, but apparently they can't sue on a civil rights case because it wasn't clearly established in the law that that's unconstitutional. Which, which is just absolute bullshit like i just qualified immunity is one of those that just i i can't you wouldn't believe it if somebody explained it to you like no. you'd be like no there's no way that's true that's not possible like, you'd be like that's insane it was like no because this person wore the magic clothing now they can do all these things and well it's qualified immunity it's like excuse me what like if i did that i would be in jail but it's because I don't wear the magic uniform. It's just, it's insane. But I want to move to something that's a little more positive, I do okay. think. Um, obviously, in Illinois, as of January 1st, they do have legalized recreational weed, which, yay for them. Um, but the other thing that happened that I don't think has gotten quite enough press is that the night before... The governor actually pardoned 11,000 people 
who had convictions for simple possession, small amounts, stuff like that. And also in their legalization bill, there is a clause in there for automatic clemency for anyone who was convicted of possession up to 30 grams. And if you were convicted for over 30 grams, you can apply for clemency, which I think that, I mean, any legalization bill, I'll take it, whatever. I really like that this did include addressing kind of the people who have already suffered under these laws that have now, I mean, not only been repealed, but especially in Illinois' case, it's done on this kind of basis of this law should never have been a law in the first place. It's unjust. And so now we need to address those who have suffered under this law. So, yeah, at least... It, I, I really like what Illinois did here, and I, I hope going forward that more states, when they do legalization, because I do think that that is going to accelerate, not deaccelerate, that they do address the harm that's been done to people who have already suffered under these laws that should never have existed in the first place. I, I think that you're going to see more of it. So um, I was vice chair of the Libertarian Party of Colorado when we were the only political party in the state that officially came out in favor of Amendment 64. So we, we got the first re-legalization in the country because we beat Oregon by an hour. Um, and Oregon did it wrong, but that's another story for a different day. And it was multiple years of going back to court and going back to the legislature to try and get um, relief either clemency or expungement or sentence reductions or whatever for people who had been incarcerated or convicted under the previous law. And I have to give a lot of respect to um, the Marijuana Policy Project, especially, and the advocates for legalization uh, around the country. You know, the people in the movement have been watching and seeing what works and what doesn't work and not sitting down and just accepting the same kind of legalization in future states, but really saying, well, that's now the floor, right? The floor is a Colorado-style bill, and we want more than that this time. You know, and, and continuing to push that envelope, continuing to refine and make it better. Um, and so I, I was actually pleasantly surprised because Illinois is a notoriously corrupt state, that they had been able to get that put into the bill itself, that uh, you know they were able to get that passed. I think part of the reason, um, and this is something that we have to recognize as advocates, especially since it's not our favorite part of these laws, but I think you know you sell that kind of tax revenue to a government that is completely bankrupt. I mean, to the point that they couldn't even pay lottery winnings, for God's sake. Um, you dangle tax money in front of them, and you can extract a lot of good criminal justice reform. And, you know, that's that's how politics really works, right? Everybody's tuned into the, the same radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me? And you got to you got to find a way to build a coalition that gets a majority and you just have to make sure you're trying to move in the right direction because the alternative 
is to sit on the sidelines and do the, you know, I want everything right now. You know, I mean, I saw this in Arizona. Arizona still doesn't have legal marijuana. And a lot of what it came down to is that you'd have people in the movement who'd say, well, I don't want the MPP bill because it's got taxes and regulation. And, you know, I don't want more regulation because I want freedom. And they're like, I want to support an initiative where we just make it as legal as tomatoes. And then, you know, they couldn't get the signatures or they'd fight in amongst each other. And the prohibitionists aren't divided like that. And so you get to say, well, I went and, you know, fought for an initiative that would have given me everything and I got nothing. You know, life's too short to get nothing all the time. And I see a lot of people make that point, especially on all of the different states that have legalized. Obviously, they have taxed it heavily. And I, I don't think that, I mean, obviously, I am not a fan of having heavily taxed legal weed. I mean, I I love the idea of legal weed. I do not like the idea of heavily taxed legal weed. But if my options here are legal, heavily taxed weed or illegal weed, I'm going to go with legal, heavily taxed weed because at least that gets a foot in the door and then I can fight that fight another day. Like once you start getting things legalized, then you can start moving that fight away from the legalization to the taxation. And I mean, for me personally, I would like to see more states legalize home cultivation. That would be my goal. But um, that's... Yeah. That's what Colorado did. And that's one of the reasons why Amendment 64 in Colorado is the gold standard for legalization initiatives or bills. Part of that bill was legalizing cultivation of up to six plants um, for individuals. And what that creates is a structural check on excessive taxation. Because, you know, I brewed beer for probably 15, 20 years now. And I don't brew beer a lot because it's kind of a pain and I can buy good beer at the store. But if they doubled the taxes on beer, I'd start homebrewing again, right? And so I'm not really that good at growing cannabis. Like I'm, I'm just not. It's, it, it requires a lot of work. But if they made the taxes too high, it's the safety valve, right? It's the way that you put pressure on the state to not overtax something because people could always grow at home. Yeah, and it's just like being able to grow anything at home. It's like, I I mean, I probably wouldn't because I'm lazy because <laughs> I, I just don't have time for all that. But it does get around the taxation thing because, I mean, I could do it if I wanted to put in the effort and then I don't have to pay the taxes. Plus, there's also the issues of it's my property and I should get to grow whatever I want. And there's that, that whole argument. But I think especially people, when it comes to this topic, they make kind of great the enemy of good. And at this point, we need to start taking good and then we can work for great later. Like you, you have to start somewhere. And it's like, well, it's if it's either this or nothing, then I'll take this. I mean, it's not my ideal, but I'll take this and then we can move forward from there. And so that's why I don't really understand this kind of very, it's either everything I want right now or nothing at all. It's like, well, then you're going to get nothing at all. 
And, Some and people then want credit for not compromising. I mean, I, I see this, it, it is more endemic within libertarian spaces, but I assume it happens elsewhere. They want to be able to say, I have never supported a tax. I have never supported a regulation. And, and sure, I mean, if you never support anything, then you never supported a tax. But you also didn't do anything to help. You just got to sit on the sidelines and, you know, pat yourself on the back. Right? Like, the way things are done, what's possible is what it is. You know, I, I had a really weird experience. We were pushing through a ballot access bill in uh, the state of Oklahoma. And the Libertarian Party had been off the ballot for like 16 years. And they finally got a bill that was passed by both houses and then, you know, had to go through conference and then get the governor to sign it. And we we're talking about retaining a lobbyist to, you know, kind of push it through. And there were people in the party who said, well, this bill isn't good enough. Like it didn't reduce the signature threshold enough. And so we just want something different. And it was bizarre because I was trying to explain to these people, the session is over. There is no opportunity to change the bill anymore. The, the legislative calendar has passed. Either this gets passed or it doesn't get passed. Those are the only options. There is no option C. You know, and you'd run into that with clients in, in criminal defense. You'd say, well, we can either take this deal and you take this penalty or we can go to trial and you risk this other penalty or you could be found not guilty. They'd be like, well, no, I want to not have to go to trial, but I want like also less penalty. It's like, that's not, that's not on the table. Like that's just not one of the options that's available. And so there's this really, you know, there's this kind of weird argumentation style where it's like, I want something, but I don't want the thing that is available. And I don't want the other thing that's available. I just want the thing I want. And, you know, even if it's impossible, I'm just going to stand here and be like, look, I'm pure. You know, I stood by my principles. And it's just, I don't know. I don't get that. Um, but I see it. And to be completely honest, I don't get it either. But yes, obviously, that is a thing within libertarianism. And I just, I don't, I don't find it very productive. I don't see where this really moves things forward for anybody. And I just, I don't, like, I, I obviously, for anything that you give me, I have my personal utopian idea of what I want. But if that thing is not on the table, then I, okay, like, what's, I, there, there's nothing I can do about that. Like, I can, you have either option A or B. So those are your options. And I, I just, I don't really understand I mean, I, 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 I won't what, say I want to go on a tangent. I want to go on a tangent. You want to do it? <laughs> like, I, I, I understand wanting to stand on principle, but at some point you do have to acknowledge the reality of your situation. And incrementalism is not always a bad thing, especially if that's all that's on the table is you can get a little bit of what you want or you can get none of what you want, maybe go for a little bit of what you want and then fight another day. So, so let's, let's go on a tangent okay? because it'll be fun. <laughs> so the president has been impeached by the house and there are two articles of impeachment, abuse of power and uh, obstruction of Congress. There are people who will argue that the president should be impeached and removed 
for war crimes or for violating the Constitution or for giving bombs to Yemen or stealing money for the wall from the military or whatever other bad thing the president has done, of which there are myriad bad things. But that's just not how it works. The House passes the articles they pass, and the Senate either removes or doesn't remove. But there are people who think that it, it's clever to say, well, I support removing the president for war crimes, but I don't support removing him for abuse of power, even though that's the only way that he could be removed, like in, in the reality, in, in our timeline, assuming we don't have Vermin Supreme's time machine. <laughs> um, that's the only option, right? He's either going to be removed or not removed based on the articles that the House has conveyed. But they're like, but in magic la-la land where he was impeached for war crimes, I'd totally remove him. Well, you're literally leaving a president in there who has, in your mind, committed war crimes because you thought that the charging document didn't look the way you wanted it to. That, that to me is insane. I do not understand that. And it just seems like you're just asking to keep the president war criminal in office. You're just using more words. That's I, I, yeah. And I've heard that argument too. And I mean, if I had my way, I would have Trump impeached for violating the Immigration and Naturalization Act, like on a daily freaking basis. But nobody asked me. Oh, yeah, yeah. You still remember the temporary Muslim ban? Oh my, dude, it, dude. <laughs> so temporary. Oh my, and it's it's just gotten worse and worse right. and worse. It's just like yeah, following- I've got immig- reasons. You've got reasons. We've yeah. all got reasons. None of us are in the house, so none of us get to draft articles of impeachment. We get what we get. And I mean, even for what it's worth, I mean, I support impeachment just based on this whole Ukrainian situation in the first place. I mean, it's to me, it's pretty obvious that he was withholding- funds against Congress, against the impoundments clause to do a thing that he wanted Zelensky to do. Like, I don't, I don't know how you argue that that didn't happen, but yeah, you, you can't with a straight face argue it, but what they've realized is that if you can make things partisan enough, you don't have to, you don't have to argue with a straight face, right? Because everyone's agreed that they're not going to see it. I mean, I thought Volume two of the Mueller report was good enough to impeach on, but I'm a lawyer. So obstruction of justice really bothers me. It just, it just, impeachment is always both political and legal. So it's a mix, right? So even though I think that that would be an excellent thing to impeach on, it did not tickle the fancy of the American people enough that the Congress felt like it would get political support to do it. But the Ukraine thing did. And so there we are. Yeah, and even to our current articles of impeachment, personally, I wanted one specifically related to the impoundments clause because if for nothing else than to have the conversation. Hmm? Because there's an actual statute that's been violated? Yes, and and to force the conversation of, well, if you're going to say that he didn't violate that, I would like to hear somebody make a real good legal argument as to how this wasn't a violation of that. I right. would like to have that conversation, but again, nobody asked me. Right. Well, and it's also about, you know, what do we want as libertarians, right? Do we want to delegitimize the state by any means necessary? Because there is a certain strain of libertarian thought that thinks that if you have 
a corrupt president, you know, giving kickbacks to his cronies and abusing power, that will decrease the respect for the government and the office to the point that people will support dismantling it. And I don't think that's the right path because I don't think that that's what actually happens. I think at that point you just get people so cynical that they start accepting bad behavior. You know, you, you have to dismantle things carefully and while still maintaining some level of law and ethics, otherwise you undercut your own argument. In making but, that argument, you're also assuming that everybody is thinking the way you do, that you already view government as inherently illegitimate in that you think that other people will view this and now they will think the same way. And unfortunately, it's not exactly how this is panning out. I, no. I wish it would have. <laughs> no, it's just making them numb. It's making them numb to corruption. And so what you end up with is not some glorious revolution where we, you know, revisit the spirit of 1776. What you're ending up with is that we start accepting that we can just elect a Caudillo to uh, run our country. I don't like that. And, and of course, this is all leaving aside the fact that as of this recording, um, I, I do suppose whether you wanted to pull back the articles of impeachment and reopen the investigation or start a new one, um, I guess you could kind of charge the president with war crimes right about now. Oh, easily. Oh, um, my God. That's one I... of the nice things about abuse of power as an article. You know, I, I have to give some credit to the the House for doing it that way, is abuse of power covers whatever abuses of power are presented in the Senate trial, which is why I think that McConnell is so desperate to not have any witnesses or testimony, because sometimes evidence comes out at trial that wasn't available at the indictment stage, and he knows that, and everybody knows that, right? If there was any defense of the president, he wouldn't be afraid of trial and witnesses, I, but there I, isn't. I, I know somebody who doesn't know that. Uh, apparently, oh, Marco okay. Rubio doesn't know that. Well, Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio is a special fella. <laughs> Him and Lindsey Graham are, uh, you know, one of the things that's that's really sad, and I do have some Republican friends, and I'm sad for them, is that the president came into this being just who he is, right? That was already baked in. But all of his supporters used to have claim to some level of principle or honor or integrity or, you know, fealty to the Constitution or basic ideas of good governance or whatever it is. And they are all being asked to participate in these, you know, fraternity hazing rituals in which they do terrible, embarrassing things and demean themselves. And he's going to walk away from it clean because he already had debased himself, right? Like that... That is his identity. But now they're all going to be stuck with his identity. And it's not theirs. And it's going to be difficult to shake off. And, uh, you know, it's kind of nice for the Libertarian Party because it's a great opportunity. But it's kind of sad to watch people destroy who they were in service to somebody who not only has no sense of loyalty, but actively betrays the people who were loyal to him. It's really been one of my greatest disappointments of the Trump era is watching how some people have pivoted to supporting him against principles that they had previously said that they had 
and how they have treated certain people or a certain someone who stuck by his <laughs> principles and now does not have a political home. Well, he's always welcome to come home when he's ready to come home. I'm sincerely hoping. <laughs> please, please, Justin. Justin, we're over here. We, we still love you. <laughs> but it's just like, it's it goes to kind of one of those things where there's still people that think that libertarians can kind of infiltrate the GOP and save them. And I'm just like, no, Mm-mm. no, they don't. They don't want to be saved. So stop it. Stop. Stop. None. Go, go save our own party. Like stop saving them. They don't want it anymore. Apparently. Yeah. Well, but, we'll see how it turns out. Come on. Come home, Justin. Justin. <laughs> We we need a presidential candidate. <laughs> it's it's my preferred choice. I know a lot of people don't. Well, not that they don't like it, but the whole you were Republican and then you go back to the Libertarian Party and that's whole thing and that's that's a whole whole another tangent right there. Yeah, that's a, that's probably another show. Yeah, but at this point, I think we've gone on long enough, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So. Go ahead at this point and plug anything that you want to plug, need to plug, want to have people find you at. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, if people want to follow me on social media, I am at nsarwark on Twitter. I'm facebook.com slash nsarwark. Um, Instagram is nsarwark. It's good to have a unique last name. Um. Right now, you know, I'm still chairman of the Libertarian Party. I encourage everybody who is frustrated uh, and, and wants more liberty to join the Libertarian Party at LP.org. And, um, you know, that's where you can keep track of what's going on day to day. Get involved. We are going to have a presidential candidate. That candidate is going to be on all 50 state ballots, just like the other two not as good national political parties. And, um, you know, the, the way that you get something different in life and in politics is you you vote for something different, right? You're not going to get what you want if you keep voting for what you don't want. And so the Libertarian Party is going to keep going and putting out there something that people say they want. And if we get the support, then we're going to get what we want. And, uh, you know, just be, be who you are, you know, be live up to your own values even if you are disappointed by watching other people not live up to them and be part of the political home that you belong in even if it's not perfect at times you know and doesn't always make decisions that you might like um there's there's really a core and a platform there that is what america was built on and what we can get back to I think that's a good stopping point. It's a nice positive message, which we we haven't always had in, at this particular episode. So thank you, Nick, for sitting down and talking to me and just kind of rambling on for probably way too long. But thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that was my conversation with Nick Sarwalk. Um, I really enjoyed it. We touched on a lot of different topics. I hope this was as educational and entertaining for you as it was for us making it. So 
As always, if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.